You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of the murder of young Ak Shin. Bournemouth is a large town on the southern coast of England, initially begun as a holiday resort town to rival places such as Brighton and Bognor Regis. Its population grew rapidly, as did the services in the area, and by the early 2000s, the area has all the amenities and downsides that you would expect in a large urban centre, just with a seaside feel. Tourism still remains important, though, and it's a popular place to head for those who are looking for a more laid-back approach to English life than in London and other cities. And so it was that young Ak Shin, known to her friends as Oki, found herself in Bournemouth. She was a 26-year-old Korean student who had moved to England in November of 2001 as a language student, where she lived with a host family on Shelburne Road in the Charminster area of Bournemouth. She worked part-time as a cleaner at a bank and studied English at the Anglo-European School of English. On the 11th of July 2002, Oki went out with some friends. They headed to a nightclub, though Oki didn't drink. At the end of the night, Oki and a friend walked home together. Oki saw her friend home and then set out to walk the route back to her own house. It was just a few minutes' walk, and the residential area was quiet at night. As she walked down Malmesbury Park Road, a man rushed up behind her, and before she knew what was happening, he had stabbed her three times in the back. Oki screamed, which alerted people inside the nearby houses that something was terribly wrong. It was about ten minutes to three. Residents reported hearing two voices shouting, a man and a woman. Both, they said, sounded foreign. A number of people ran into the street and found Oki lying on the path up against a rusted green lamppost. She was bleeding heavily. An ambulance was called and Oki was rushed to hospital with life-threatening injuries. In her broken English, she was able to tell the paramedics and doctors that there had been a man who had attacked her from behind. He was wearing a mask, and he had run off. Unfortunately, after a number of hours of treatment, Oki died of the stab wounds that had been inflicted upon her. At post-mortem, no defensive wounds were found, just three deep stab wounds to Oki's back. The coroner thought that the weapon would have been a single-edged blade, about 14 or 15 centimetres long, just short of the six-inch mark. Police arrived on the scene at Malmesbury Park Road and sealed the section of the path off. There was blood visible on the concrete where Oki had lain and a messy clump of hair nearby, but beyond that there was little evidence pointing to what exactly had happened and nothing to suggest who had attacked the young woman walking home that night. 
Police started with Oki's friends, trying to get information as to whether Oki had a boyfriend or if there was anyone they knew that Oki had a problem with. One of Oki's friends from work gave police the name of another South Korean national who, according to her, had been bothering the other young woman. This young man would wait for Oki outside of her work and when police tracked him down, they discovered he was in fact a volatile kind of character. According to author Tobias Jones, this man had been expelled from his course for aggressive behaviour towards female students. He was arrested and questioned twice, but released without charge. Eventually, he returned to South Korea. A former boyfriend of Oki's was also approached. Members of his host family recalled that one of their kitchen knives had apparently gone missing for a few days, around the time of Oki's murder. This man was also interviewed but released, and also subsequently returned to South Korea. Police were then left with what was available at the crime scene, which wasn't much. There were no further leads. None. That is, until, while in police custody for an alleged incident of shoplifting in August of 2002, a woman told officers she knew what had happened to Oki. Barbara, not her real name, was a drug addict and told police that she funded her addiction through dealing herself, sex work and petty crime. Initially, she told police that a man named Ricky Thompson had been responsible for the Korean girl's death. This changed to a man she called Mike Big, whose legal name was Nick Gabatamosi, and then onto someone named Omar Hussein. She spoke about some of the men having been involved in a police chase that night, but there was no such chase. Barbara wanted to discuss Oki's murder with the police, but she seemed unwilling or unable to give them any concrete information regarding the names of the people involved and the sequence of events on the night in question. Finally, Barbara's story settled and she made a video statement. She said that initially she hadn't wanted to let police know exactly what had happened because she was afraid she'd be implicated. She said that the night Oki had died, she'd been driving around Bournemouth. Barbara dropped an associate, another addict, at Charminster Road, and as she drove away, she passed three other men, whom she knew as they frequented the same crack house. One was Omar Benguit, who she'd known for about a year at that stage. The three men had flagged her down and got into the Volvo with her. They were Omar Benguit along with his friends and, again, fellow addicts, Nick Gabadamosi and another man called Woolry. They wanted to go to the crack house on St. Clemens Road, one they all frequented, and Barbara agreed to drive them, though she said to police that she was kind of scared to say no to them. On the way there, Omar noticed a woman walking on her own down the street and made a lewd comment about Korean women. He told Barbara to pull over and stop the car, and then the three men got out. They ran back to where the woman had been walking and a few minutes later returned to the car in a hurry. They were sweating and shouting and cursing. When Benguish got back into the car, Barbara told police that he appeared to have blood on his arms. The men told Barbara that it was a handbag snatch gone wrong. Barbara said she saw Benguit take off his t-shirt and wipe himself down with it. Then he put it into a bag which appeared to have something in it, wrapped up in the shirt. 
Barbara would tell police that she now thought that this item was in fact a knife. Then they all went to the crack house together, but the men insisted that she not park her car directly outside the house on St. Clement's Road. They all smoked some crack and then continued to another flat. When they got there, Omar washed off his arms and changed his shirt. The men returned to Barbara's car after that and they forced her to drive around Bournemouth for a while. Then she was told to pull over and park. Barbara told police that it was then that the men decided to rape her. She said to police that she knew all three men carried knives and so she was terrified. It was that knowledge, along with a general distrust for police, that had stopped her reporting the rape to authorities. She feared not only for her own safety, but also that of her daughter. After Barbara's statement, the police in Bournemouth went about trying to corroborate her story. No easy feat, given that basically all of the people they needed to speak to were addicted to drugs. They were transient, with no set routines, and it made it difficult for people to remember exactly where they had been on the days in question. Eventually, though, a number of people confirmed to police that Omar Benguet had been present at the two crack houses, two flats in the same property that night. Joan Sheridan, a woman who ran the crack house on St. Clement's Road, recalled the date specifically, though. It was the 12th of July, she said, because the Orange Order parades would be on in Northern Ireland later that day. She recalled that Omar Benguish and Nick Gabadamosi had been in hers early that morning, and that Omar had blood on his hands and had been looking for a change of clothes. Police also discovered another woman, again an addict, who said that Benguit had told her he had stabbed a Korean woman in the Charminster area. Omar Benguit was a local and was known to the police due to his drug addiction. He was the youngest of three siblings and his sister described him as a cheeky young boy to Brona Monroe, a reporter for the BBC. Omar had a hard time in school and ended up being sent to a special school for children with behavioural problems. He left there without any qualifications and shortly after began using heavy drugs. He soon racked up over 60 criminal convictions, many of them drug-related, but a few were for violent incidents. Omar was found guilty of having threatened someone with a syringe. Another was for an assault on a man in the course of a pub brawl. Omar was convicted of stabbing the other man in the chest and that man had suffered injuries such that he had metal plates in his skull. Benguish was arrested in order to be questioned in relation to the murder of Yang Ok Shin on August 22nd, 2002. Benguish said that he had seen police cars on Malmesbury Park Road that night and he had heard about the murder the following day, but he hadn't been involved. Omar said that he hadn't even been to the house on St. Clement's Road that night. He had nothing to do with it. In further interviews, he told police that he never met or saw Ms. Shin. He'd never made any remarks or comments about Korean girls. But he could provide no names for an alibi for that night. With Barbara's statement and the other witnesses confirming that Benguet had been in St. Clement's that night, Benguet was held. He would go on to make a further statement on the 26th of November 2002. He said that that morning, at about 3am, 
He and a woman named Leanne Mayers got a taxi together. They all drove around together for a while and then stopped at St. Clement's Road to buy crack at about 5am. The three of them had smoked it there and after that, Omar said he walked into town on his own. He said he had no idea why Barbara would lie about him like that to the police, but maybe it was for reward money or to distance herself from whatever had happened that night. This story was also followed up by the police. A taxi driver named Sean Phipson said he had not given a ride to Benguish and Mayers that night. And so the trial began in November of 2003. Omar Benguish was charged with the murder of young Akshin and the rape of Barbara. He was joined in the dock by Nick Gabadamosi, who faced two charges of rape as well as one for assisting an offender. The third man that Barbara had named as present that night and of having participated in her rape, Delroy Woolry, had by this point been deported back to Jamaica and did not face any charges. Omar Benguet took the stand in his own defence. At the trial, he denied having murdered young Akshin and denied having really known the witness, Barbara. He said he'd never been in her car that night, he'd never been in a flat with blood on his hands, and had never told another woman that he'd stabbed a student. Benguet told the court that he couldn't recall exactly where he had been in the early morning hours of the 12th of July 2002. He had suffered from severe addiction issues and his memory had been affected. He denied that certain phone calls made to his brother while he was in custody had been attempts to establish an alibi. Rather, he said, they were attempts for him to try and figure out his own movements, given the circumstances he found himself in, as he experienced withdrawal. The jury failed to reach a decision on the murder charges before them, as well as the charges of assisting an offender laid against Gabadamosi. They did acquit Gabadamosi of the two charges of rape. A retrial was held in 2004 relating to the charges that the jury had failed to reach a decision on. In addition to the evidence presented in the first trial, new CCTV footage actually put Nick Gabadamosi, or at least his car, in another part of Bournemouth. It was spotted breaking the speed limit on a police camera at the time that Barbara's rape was to have occurred. This time, Benguet was found not guilty of rape Gabadamosi was found not guilty of assisting an offender, but again, no decision could be reached on the murder charges. The following year, there was yet another retrial, which was allowed only after special permission for the proceedings was given. This time, Benguet was in fact found guilty of Young Auction's murder. He was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment, and his appeal against his conviction was dismissed in the same year. At that appeal proceeding, Benguet was represented by Anthony Don QC. It was argued that the second trial had on its face been unjust, and that the evidence presented against Benguet, particularly the varying statements made by Barbara, was unreliable. Added to that, the fact that there was no physical or forensic evidence indicating Benguet had anything to do with Oki's murder his legal team argued that there wasn't enough there to sustain the charges, and the ruling to allow a second trial was therefore an error. 
but the Court of Appeal was not convinced. In 2011, Benguet's case was brought before the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which deals with alleged miscarriages of justice. The CCRC investigates and reviews cases and has the power to refer them back to the appeals court if it's found that there is a possibility that a sentence might be reduced or, indeed, a conviction overturned. And so in 2014, Benguet and his legal team launched yet another attempt at an appeal. It was heard in March of that year and there were two main grounds on which his appeal was based. The first was that the evidence given by Barbara, the woman who had initially pointed police in the direction of Benguet, was unreliable and she did not make for a credible witness. Since the trials, she had made a number of public statements about the case and some of the information contradicted her evidence at trial. Barbara was interviewed for a magazine article in 2007 and said that she had actually seen Benguet stab Yong Ok Shin and then went further and said she had approached police herself a few days after the attack to tell her story. For that interview, Barbara was paid £500. The following year, Barbara appeared on an episode of The Jeremy Kyle Show. Again, she told the story about having seen the stabbing itself and added, that she'd seen Benguet holding the knife when he returned to her car. It was argued that these further inconsistencies, taken together with her changing story pre-trial and the personal issues that Barbara had, which called into question her credibility, meant that her testimony as a basis for the conviction of Omar Benguet couldn't be relied upon. And without that, there wouldn't be enough evidence to sustain the charges against Benguet. On top of all that, CCTV from the area was examined by two separate experts. They were given footage of the area from just before Oki was attacked, when she left her friend, to just after the ambulance arrived on scene at five past three in the morning. Neither of these experts were able to identify either of the cars Barbara said she was driving in the period immediately before the attack, from 2.43 to 2.55. The experts differed on the period of 2.30 to 2.43 and could not conclusively rule the cars out from appearing in the footage at that time. But if the attack had occurred the way Barbara described it, then surely the car she was to have been driving that night, either the Volvo or a Renault, would have been seen on the CCTV in the area around the time of the attack. The second ground of Benguet's appeal related to newly discovered evidence. In May of 2002, an Italian man, Danilo Restivo, had moved to Bournemouth and in November of 2002, he had stalked and killed a neighbour. Nor was this the first murder that Restivo had been involved in. Danilo Restivo was born in 1972 in Sicily and he has one older sister. When he was around 10, he moved with his family to the small town of Potenza in southern Italy. By the time he was a young adult, he was known to the police and had come to their attention through both placing persistent phone calls to women who had refused to go out with him and for surreptitiously cutting other women's hair. On the 12th of September 1993, 16-year-old Elisa Claps went missing in Potenza. Elisa was the youngest in her family. She was known as responsible, sweet, and maybe a little naive. 
She wanted to study medicine, to work for Doctors Without Borders when she was an adult. Elisa's friends recalled that she had felt a bit sorry for Danilo. He was a loner and kind of sad, and so when he called her asking to meet because he wanted to give her a present for passing recent examinations that year, she agreed. That day, Sunday the 12th, Elisa met Danilo just as Mass finished in the Church of the Holy Trinity at about half eleven. She had gone to the church with a friend whom she parted with outside, saying she'd be about 30 minutes. According to author Tobias Jones in his book Blood on the Altar, the two girls were to travel to the countryside that afternoon to have lunch with Elisa's family. But Elisa was never seen again. Her brother Gildo went to the church when she didn't return, but Elisa wasn't there. Gildo tried to check with the parish priest, but he had left suddenly on a trip and had taken with him the only key to the church. When Gildo called Danilo to ask where his sister had gone to, he was told that Restivo had left town that afternoon for university and that anyway, Danilo had no idea where Elisa had gone. On his return to Potenza, when Danilo Restivo was questioned by police, he became almost hysterical, but did admit that the two had met in the church and said that Elisa had left and gone home. He had stayed behind to pray for a few moments. A cursory search of the church was eventually made, but police were not terribly concerned when the Claps family went to them, saying that their daughter was missing. It was thought that perhaps she'd run off with a boyfriend and might return soon. The very idea of Elisa doing such a thing seemed impossible to the Claps family. When Elisa didn't show up in the following days, there were thoughts, based on a reading of her diary, that she might have been abducted by Albanians. A young Albanian immigrant known to Elisa and her friends was spotted by one of the teenage girls in the piazza outside the church that Sunday morning. But when he was questioned by police, he denied having been there at all. As time passed, there were sightings of Elisa in Albania, and in Italy, and in Brazil. Occasionally, the Claps family would receive a phone call or letter demanding money from them for Elisa's return, but each incident came to nothing. The case of Elisa Claps became a sort of Italian Maura Murray. People wanted to know what had happened to the poor girl, and the strange, disparate pieces of evidence that emerged were just enough for people to build theories upon. Elisa's family eventually became convinced that there was collusion between the local priest, police, and the person responsible for Elisa's disappearance to cover up what had happened to her. In 1996, there was a trial relating to Elisa's disappearance. Restivo was tried for giving false information, as was the friend who had been with Elisa the morning she went missing. Police had come to think that she must have had some knowledge or something to do with it. When the teenager had initially reported Elisa's disappearance to her brother Gildo Claps, she hadn't been entirely truthful, leaving out the fact that Elisa was to meet Restivo and saying only that the girls had lost sight of one another in the crowds at Mass. Eventually, she had admitted exactly what had happened and helped Gildo to try and contact all of Elisa's friends. Restivo was convicted and sentenced to 20 months and was released, as is normal for short sentences in Italy. Claps's friend was found guilty at a second trial and sentenced to 14 months in jail for perjury, 
but this was overturned at the Supreme Court level. There was no trace of Elisa until 2010, when a body was found in the loft of the Church of the Holy Trinity. She was discovered in a small room on the first floor of the church, an alcove near to the bell tower, by workmen attempting to fix a leak in the roof. The body was confirmed as Elisa's. Her bra had been cut and her trousers were pulled down, and a lock of her own hair was found near to her hands. Elisa had died fighting. She had been stabbed six times from behind and three times to the front, all to her torso, and her neck had been slashed. Her hands were covered in cuts and gashes. According to the Guardian, a detailed examination of her body indicated that the attack might have had a sexual element to it. Samples containing DNA were found. By this stage, though, the prime suspect, Danilo Restivo, had moved to England. On the 21st of May 2002, he took up lodging with Fiamma Marsango on Capstone Road in Bournemouth. The two had met online and began a relationship and would go on to marry in the following years. They shared the red brick two-story house with another Italian national who was Fiamma's lodger. On November 12th of the same year, the children of their neighbour, Heather Barnett, who were 11 and 14 at the time, returned home from school as usual. The front door to their flat was unlocked, which was unusual. Heather was security conscious, and in fact had just had her locks changed the week before after she'd lost the spare key to their front door. She had thought her neighbour Danilo might have accidentally brought it home with him while he was in the flat speaking to her about a sewing project he wanted to have made for Fiamma as a surprise. Heather had sent them a note about it, but the key wasn't returned, and so Heather had the locks changed, just in case. When the children, Terry and Caitlin, entered the flat, there was no sign of their mother, so the two kids went looking. Heather wasn't in the bedroom that she shared with her daughter. Her sewing table was knocked over in the sitting room. Eventually, they went into the bathroom, and it was there that they found their mother lying dead. It was an horrific scene, made even more so by the fact that it had been discovered by Heather's children. She had been badly mutilated. Her breasts had been cut off and there were clumps of hair found on the scene placed into Heather Barnett's hands. Heather Barnett was just 48. She was a seamstress and worked from home. Friends described her as feisty and independent and was known to them by the nickname Bunny. She had been last seen alive that morning, having dropped the kids to school. Upon making the discovery, the children ran outside, terrified and devastated and were brought into their neighbour's house, where Marsango and Restivo did their best to comfort and calm the children, while the police were notified. An investigation began immediately, and it was thought by police that Heather Barnett had been killed shortly after she had returned home from the school run that morning. CCTV would later show her car pulling into Capstone Road, confirming that Heather had come straight home. The front door was left unlocked and the car radio was playing and there were signs of a significant struggle in the house. When a forensic examination of the scene was done, blood spatter was found in the living room and further bloodstains were discovered on the floor, indicating that at some point Miss Barnett had been dragged. Heather Barnett had been beaten to death with a hammer-like object. 
Her bra had been cut open in the front and her trousers were pulled down. There was a failed attempt to remove her head, which caused significant damage to her neck. The scene was sprayed with luminol to detect traces of blood left from the fight and the murder, and this test uncovered a number of footprints in the house too. But they stopped before whoever was wearing them had exited, indicating that Heather's attacker had changed his shoes before leaving the house. That night, Fiamma and Danilo went to the police station in Bournemouth to give their statements. After describing how they had found the hysterical children, they were asked to account for themselves that morning. Danilo told police that he had been on his way to a computer course around the time that Heather would have arrived home from the school run and showed them his bus ticket proving his journey. A green towel was found in the Barnett's flat, which would later be discovered to have DNA material consistent with Danilo Restivo. The likelihood of this not being a match to him was one in 57,000. But when presented with this evidence, Restivo again had a story for the police. He told them that he'd brought the towel over to Heather's house himself because he wanted to have curtains made to match. Along with this flimsy excuse to attempt to explain away DNA evidence, police made inquiries abroad about Danila Restivo and discovered that he had been convicted of perjury in a case relating to the disappearance of a teenaged girl. This information placed Danilo Restivo firmly on the list of viable suspects in the murder of Heather Barnett, but it would be some time before any real action would be taken against him. There was little circumstantial evidence and no conclusive direct evidence for some time. The hair found at the scene was puzzling for detectives working on the case. It hadn't been immediately apparent and was only discovered when forensic investigators went to put Ms Barnett's hands into bags to preserve any evidence there. The hair appeared to have been cut at one end. After testing, the hair in one hand was determined to belong to Heather herself. The other hank of hair, however, did not. Police decided that it might help to know who that hair had come from and when it was subjected to a number of other tests, the hair showed that the woman it had belonged to had travelled in the past year. She had been located in England and possibly Spain or France and Florida in the US. She'd also recently changed her diet. This information was released to the public in the hopes of identifying the source of the other hair. Though this never occurred, other women in the Charminster area came forward saying that they had had odd encounters, mainly on public transport, where a man sitting behind them had cut their hair. The women described how initially it felt as if their hair was being tugged or pulled. Most assumed it was some sort of accident, and it might have been a day or so before they realised that a lock of their hair had been cut. These stories were startlingly similar to those that police in Italy had been made aware of. Incidents that had involved Heather Barnett's neighbour, Danilo Restivo. On the 12th of May 2004, Restivo was stopped by police. He had been under surveillance for some time, but on this particular day he was seen hiding in some bushes at Throop Mill Park, watching women as they passed. He was dressed in a hooded jacket, despite it being warm outside. 
Police who had been observing and filming feared that he may be about to attack another woman, and so brought in some uniformed police at that stage before anyone else was potentially hurt. In a search of his car, they discovered a balaclava-type face mask, a knife, gloves, and an identical change of clothing and some scissors. But the case against Restivo stalled until the body of Elisa Claps was discovered in the church in Italy in 2010. Two months after that gruesome discovery was made, Restivo was charged with Heather Barnett's murder. Restivo faced trial in 2011, and evidence gathered in a number of searches of his home was presented. They'd found a lock of hair and a pair of runners that Restivo had worn the day of Heather Barnett's death. There were traces of blood on them that were later tested for DNA, and despite having been soaked in bleach, the DNA was found to be a match for the murdered mother. The prosecution argued that the bus ticket that Restivo had relied upon to support his alibi proved only that he had purchased a ticket that morning. They pointed to CCTV from Charminster Road, recorded just before half nine that morning, which showed a man crossing the road. A further witness working in a shop in the area at the same time confirmed that the man pictured was Danila Restivo. The Crown argued that this footage captured Restivo after Ms. Barnett's murder, that he had changed and was hurrying to the computer course that he was supposed to be at, where he would continue to go about his day as if normal. Reporting for The Guardian, Tobias Jones outlined how evidence was presented that the computer that Restivo used during the course was examined, and it was discovered that it had not been used between 9.09 and 10.10 that morning. Restivo had told police that he arrived at his course at 9am, but the computer hard drive indicated differently. The jury were allowed to hear evidence relating to Elisa Clapp's disappearance, that Restivo had been the last person to see her alive, and that DNA had been found on Elisa's clothing, which matched Restivo. According to Andy Martin, writing for the Bournemouth Daily Echo, the jury was told that the DNA material on Elisa's jumper was a mixed sample from both Elisa and Restivo, and there was such a quantity of it that the forensic experts thought it was most likely the DNA had come from blood. This lined up with witnesses who had seen Restivo the day of Elisa's murder. They said he had a cut on the back of his hand, which Restivo had explained he'd gotten as he fell, taking a shortcut through a building site that day. Restivo was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. He was also found guilty in absentia in Italy for the murder of Elisa Claps. At the beginning of November 2011, an abridged trial was held there where no evidence was disputed. The whole process took three days and Danilo Restivo was not present at any point, nor were any of his family. Given the sort of summary trial, he was not eligible for a life sentence, but the Italian judge decided on a 30-year tariff to be served for Elisa's murder. On the 10th of October 2012, Danilo Restivo had his case heard before the appeal courts in London. He and his legal team argued that in handing down a full-life tariff, the trial judge had erred because he had taken into consideration the murder of Elisa Claps, a murder that Restivo had at that point not been convicted of. 
They also said that the judge had failed to take into account a diagnosed mental illness as mitigation in the sentencing. Eventually, Restivo's sentencing was revised, and he was given a 40-year tariff. In the 2014 appeal, counsel on behalf of Benguet argued that Restivo was a viable suspect in the murder of Oki. Not only was he a known and confirmed multiple murderer, he had lived incredibly close to the scene of Oki's attack and Oki herself. A knife had been involved in the attacks. All of the victims were in close proximity to Restivo. Clumps of hair were found at each scene. The lack of forensic evidence in each was consistent with the Blitz attack and someone who was forensically aware. There was also the strange coincidence that each murder had occurred on the 12th of the month. But the judges of the appeal court were also informed that there were, of course, differences in some of the crimes. Yang Ok Shin was not mutilated like the other two women, and her clothing had not been interfered with. That said, there were differences between the killings of Elisa Claps and Heather Barnish, too. The 16-year-old had been stabbed repeatedly, whereas the mother of two had not been stabbed at all. The argument that Benguet's legal team was making was that at the time of Oki's murder, there was another man in the area known to commit similar crimes. The knife used by Restivo matched the wounds on Oki's body, and although it could be argued that Restivo hadn't attacked a woman outside, he was arrested in a public park where police thought an attack on a woman might be imminent. Restivo's alibi for the night of Oki's murder was his partner, Miss Marsango, but the other lodger in the house indicated it might not be accurate, given his understanding of the sleeping arrangements in the house at the time. The decision of the appeal court on Benguet's case was delivered in May of 2014. They were not convinced by the fresh evidence arguments. In relation to Barbara, they said that the question of her credibility had been examined before the jury and that her story had not changed sufficiently to think that these changes would have impacted the jury's decision. The question of the CCTV, the judge felt, was inconclusive and therefore not relevant. When it came to the possibility that Danilo Restivo had committed the murder, the court concluded that the crimes themselves were too different to be considered possibly linked. Elisa Claps and Heather Barnett had been killed inside. Their clothes had been cut. Hair had been left in their hands. The murder of Ms. Shin appeared to be more of a crime of opportunity than anything else. On those bases, the appeal was rejected. The last time Danilo Restivo made the news was when he was objecting to being deported to serve out his sentence in Italy. Alongside complaining that Italian prisons aren't noted for their comfort, Restivo argued that a move would make it impossible to keep in touch with his wife, Fiamma Marsango, which would breach his rights under the European Convention of Human Rights to the enjoyment of family life. It would seem that either the case is still making its way through the courts or the matter of deportation has since been dropped. Meanwhile, speculation continues regarding Restivo's possible involvement in other murders. Not only is his name mentioned in relation to Young Ok Shin's death, a photo of Erica Anserman, a young adopted Asian woman who went missing in Italy, was found on Restivo's home computer during searches. 
In 2016, law students at the University of Portsmouth began working on Benguet's case, under the supervision of a senior lecturer with experience working for the Innocence Project in California. Marika Henneberg took on the case along with two others in her criminal justice clinic at the university. They continue to advocate for Omar Benguet, saying that he has been wrongfully convicted. But Ms. Henneberg also cites procedural issues in the justice system itself, along with the problematic witness evidence, as the reason for Benguet still being behind bars. Marika and her team discovered that there are no trial transcripts in existence in relation to any of Benguet's three trials. The only document available is the judge's sentencing remarks from 2015, so the prosecution service has nothing. And there is no minimum requirement for solicitors or lawyers to keep clients' files. The standard practice is six years, but this has no legislative basis. It would appear that Benguet's lawyers didn't keep the transcripts either, and so there is no reliable record of what happened at any of Benguet's three trials. No verbatim recounting of witness evidence and no outline of any of the legal argument or judge's decisions. Without this, it is nearly impossible to make arguments for appeal or any relief on the basis of witness credibility or how a judge might have handled a point of law. Since Benguet's first trial, Ms. Henneberg revealed that two of his legal advisors, part of teams that were paid hundreds of thousands of pounds by Benguet's family, have faced prison for deception and fraud. In 2018, Benguet and the murder of Young Ok Shin received national attention when the BBC made a six-part documentary on the case. Brona Monroe and her research team delved into the evidence that had put Benguet behind bars, the witness testimony. Monroe tracked down some of the people that had given evidence at Omar's trial, People who, like Omar, had been deep in addiction at the time of Oki's murder. Two of the women that Brona and her team visited told her that when they were approached by police, they felt pressured to say what the authorities wanted to hear. Their addictions meant that they were vulnerable in a number of ways, which led them to lie, a number of times, in court. Omar Benguet is now just a few years away from his first appearance before the parole board in the UK. To this day, he still maintains his innocence, knowing that this may mean he may not be released when that time comes. He told Monroe during the course of the Unsolved series, quote, I'd rather die in jail and be carried out in a box saying I didn't do it than to say I did it and go home today. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or honestly, just tell a friend. That is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Alison Cunningham, Kelly Wallace, JD Chambers, Lisa, Gillian Jenner, John Finn and Seamus Dennison. Head on over to patreon.com and check out the perks of being a supporter of Mens Rea on Patreon. There's bonus episodes, nifty merch, and of course, my undying love. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. 
don't forget to head to betterhelp.com forward slash men's. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com forward slash M-E-N-S to get 10% off your first month of professional online counseling. And definitely don't forget to check out the podcast True Crime Couple and the amazing online puzzle game, Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So go on, check them out. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. This is Jeremy Banks. His girlfriend, Michelle O'Connell, her death was officially ruled a suicide, but not everyone believes the sheriff's conclusion. Then, a private citizen named Eli Washtock began investigating her case. But before he could finish, he was murdered. We're picking up where Eli Washtock left off. From the creators of Twisted and Pretend Podcast, this is Criminal Conduct, Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. Download Criminal Conduct wherever you listen to podcasts.